Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to begin to look into some of the complicated uh, diplomatic manoeuvrings between Britain and America during the Second World War, particularly over the question of the uh, the Middle East, the most uh, strategically important theatre of the war in many ways, uh, it being uh, the source of vast quantities of oil from Saudi Arabia. Um, the British had been the hegemonic power in the Middle East since 1919, having been able to limit uh, French ambitions. And after the fall of France in 1940, uh, the uh, strength that the French were able to project in the Middle East, either the Vichy French or the Free French forces, was uh, greatly limited, much to the outrage of Charles de Gaulle. Following the entry of the United States into the war in uh, December 1941, Franklin Roosevelt was very keen to find out uh, about the region and the prospects for the continued survival of the British in the Middle East, facing as they were uh, a resurgent Germany in North Africa and uh, German subversion in um, places such as uh, Iraq. Another key area of uh, American concerns about the uh, Allied operation uh, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa was the Franco-British relationship. Uh, the Franco-British relationship between um, the British forces in Mesopotamia or Iraq, as it was uh, later um, titled, um, and if the French forces in Syria, uh, the British in Palestine and the French in Lebanon, um, had deteriorated from 1919 onwards uh, up until 1939, as both sides sought to play uh, Arabs and Jews uh, off against uh, the other um, and sought to use the nationalist tensions in each other's uh, spheres of influence in the Middle East to dislodge one another. And de Gaulle, who had effectively been rescued by the British uh, in 1940 and uh, in exile, kind of groomed to be the leader of the, the, the Free French movement, 
uh, saw the struggle in the Middle East equally as a struggle against Great Britain uh, as it was uh, against Germany um, when he met uh, Franklin Roosevelt's um, plenipotentiary, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, foreign policy um, envoy, uh, Wendell Wilkie, um, who had uh, contested the 1940 um, presidential election against Roosevelt and thought he might be up for a, a repeat performance in 1944. Um, de Gaulle told Wilkie that um, the struggle at the moment was with the British and it would be um, really the question of who would dominate Syria and Lebanon, the, uh, the French or the British. Well, by the end of the war, it's the British. The British actually have to intervene in Syria uh, and Lebanon in order to return the free French armies to their barracks uh, and strip them of their arms. Um, when they suppress nationalist revolts in Damascus uh, and in Beirut uh, with unprecedented ferocity uh, and violence, um, so much so that uh, the, the British army is forced to, uh, under Churchill's orders, to intervene. So today I'm looking at Lords of the Desert by James Barr, which is a kind of sequel to his amazing book, A Line in the Sand. Both are meticulously researched and really show um, what somebody who uh, understands the, the, the kind of archival research very well uh, can achieve. Um, they are superb, superb reads. The Lords of the Desert is more focused on um, the post-war years and Britain and America's uh, really quite hidden struggle to control um, the Middle East and its um, uh, economic spoils um, after the war. Um, James Barr writes about the uh, Anglo-French relations before uh, 1939. Uh, he writes, Such was the bad blood that when France fell in 1940, the French administration in Beirut sided not with Britain but with Vichy, when the Vichy administration then let Germany use Syria as a base to make trouble in Iraq in 1941, British and free French forces invaded Syria and Lebanon and took over. In an effort to win local support, shortly before the invasion, the free French had promised that they would make Syria and Lebanon free and independent. Once installed in Beirut, however, de Gaulle backpedalled. Although he was happy to behave like La France personified when he felt like it, the moment that Wilkie, Wendell Wilkie, Roosevelt's advisor, asked him when France would give up her mandate, he became most evasive. I hold it in trust, he answered. I cannot close out that mandate or let anyone else do so. That can be done only when there is a government again in France. So the occupation of France became a convenient excuse for the indefinite control of French mandates. By that point, relations between the French and the British were close to rupture over the issue of Lebanese and Syrian independence. The British had effectively guaranteed the free French promise and were under pressure from Lebanese and Syrian nationalists to hold de Gaulle to account. One significant uh, British problem uh, during the war was the question of the Palestine Mandate. The mandate had been established in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference. However, Britain had occupied uh, Jerusalem, 
and the rest of uh, the uh, Ottoman provinces, uh, the, uh, the Ottoman territory that would make up Palestine since 1917, late 1917. Uh, and it, it was then that uh, the Balfour Declaration uh, was uh, brought into effect, which guaranteed uh, a national homeland for Jewish people in Palestine. Of course, the British interests were um, as geo uh, geopolitical and strategic. They wanted a state that they could control that would act as a buffer to the Suez Canal um, that would prevent uh, enemy forces from establishing themselves right on the edge, the uh, eastern edges of the canal, as had happened during uh, the First World War with the, the Ottoman Empire. And they, uh, the likes of Balfour took a number of high-handed and, and largely misguided uh, assumptions um, that uh, not only would uh, Jewish people around the world be hopelessly grateful to the British Empire for establishing them a, a homeland in Palestine, but also the, the wealth that it was imagined they would bring with them there was some, kind of some quite anti-Semitic tropes um, uh, mingled in with supposedly well-meaning British policy, that the, the money that they would bring with them would revitalise the Palestinian economy and this would somehow trickle down to the uh, Arab peoples there uh, who would be um, have their living standards raised by Jewish entrepreneurship. Of course, all of these are um, wild assumptions um, and and um, a deeper kind of level of anti-Semitism in, in British thinking was that if the British didn't pro offer a Jewish um, homeland um, uh, at the uh, outcome of the war, then the Kaiser might, and nefarious Jewish bankers and Rothschilds and all these sorts of, you know, again, anti-Semitic tropes, uh, anti-Semitic ideas... Um, would um, shift uh, wealth and finance away from the British Empire and towards um, towards Germany. One only needs to look at the the living conditions of people like Chaim uh, Weizmann uh, and the other um, leading uh, Zionist uh, politicians and uh, activists at the time to realise uh, that uh, if they did have vast sources of of undisclosed wealth, they were very well hidden. Most uh, uh, most of the the kind of the, the leading Zionist politicians lived in relative penury for for much of their lives. Jewish immigration into the Palestine Mandate throughout the twenties and thirties resulted uh, in an Arab uprising in nineteen thirty six, uh, and it was the first time uh, in uh, in nineteen thirty six that the British had considered partitioning Palestine. In addition to that, the British decided that it was time to dramatically decrease uh, the numbers of Jews able to make it into uh, the mandate just at the time uh, when uh, mass emigration from Europe was uh, um, a matter of life and death to countless Jews. Um, so the number was limited to 15,000 a year. And during the war, the British convinced themselves that uh, this would also keep out um, German agents posing as German Jews. Not that there was any indication that this was something that the Germans might try. Slowly, as the uh, evidence of Nazi atrocities in Europe against the Jews uh, mounted up, 
the pressure, particularly in America, for a change in British policy began to escalate. And the question of um, Jewish uh, immigration into Palestine and the question of the establishment of a Jewish state uh, after the end of the Second World War gradually make their way up the political agenda in America. Um, America that hasn't been occupied, America that hasn't been um, militarily attacked other than Pearl Harbor is in far um, more, uh, is a far better forum for these kinds of, uh, of debates to actually be heard by the executive. And Roosevelt is listening. Roosevelt is aware that key demographic, demographics, uh, Jewish demographics uh, in um, cities and in uh, electoral districts across America uh, can hold his fate um, quite easily uh, if such issues are, aren't addressed. And so Roosevelt, in turn, uh, was uh, happy to turn to the British to ask for an answer on the outcome of Palestine. Among both Jews and Arabs, there were some moves to create uh, an Arab-Jewish state. Um, James Barr, again, uh, writes uh, about Henrietta Zold. Um, originally from Baltimore, now in her 80s, Henrietta Zold um, had em- emigrated to Palestine at the turn of the 20th century. Earlier that summer, with several others, she had set up a moderate political party that encouraged both fellow uh, Jews to form personal friendships with Arabs as a first step to the establishment of a binational Jewish-Arab state. Convinced by Sold that goodwill and simple honesty might yet resolve the Arab-Jewish question, Wendell Wilkie, who had um, gone uh, to Palestine to to visit her, um, also used the opportunity um, to ask her what was getting in the way? I asked her if she thought it was true that certain foreign powers were deliberately stirring up trouble between the Jew and the Arab to sustain their own control. With a sad heart, I must tell you, it is true, said Saul. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
One must re- realise, however, that um, Wilkie, uh, something of an Anglophobe, uh, had little love for the British Empire, uh, and how reliable that testimony is is, is questionable. When Wilkie returned home to America in October 1942, um, he told Roosevelt he had a, a, a very negative report to make uh, about the British in the Middle East, that their misrule and mishandling uh, and their um, constant um, sort of duplicity with both Arabs and Jews was kindling discontent across the region, particularly among Arabs, that would uh, play directly into the hands of the Axis powers, um, and that America would be tarnished with the same uh, negativity uh, unless uh, Roosevelt wasn't, was careful, um, and that Roosevelt therefore had to offer the people of the Middle East some kind of uh, bigger uh, and more um, libertarian or liberal picture um, of what could be um, achieved at the, the outcome of the war, uh, i.e. Roosevelt had to commit to the dismantling of the British Empire in the Middle East. Of course, Roosevelt can't do this, and uh, Roosevelt, there was no question that Roosevelt would be able to request this of Churchill. So Wilkie decided he was going to speak directly to um, uh, to the American population. Um, he broadcast a half-hour programme called Report to the People two weeks later in early November. Um, and in it, he described his travels across the Middle East um, and referred to the peoples of the Middle East as looking to the United States with a degree of respect and hope and goodwill. Um, and the um, message that America needed to be pressing throughout the Middle East was one of um, America being a force for liberty. He said, beside giving our allies in Asia and Eastern Europe something to um, fight with, we have got to give um, them the assurance of what we are fighting for, he said in his broadcast, uh, which was this um, rather kind of open notion of, um, of freedom. In Africa, in the Middle East, and throughout the Arab world, as well as in China and the Far East, freedom means orderly but scheduled abolition of the colonial system, he declared. The rule of people by other peoples is not freedom and not what we must fight to preserve. Now, this is a popular feeling throughout uh, much of American society and throughout many of the American armed forces. Um, It was based less, perhaps, in kind of uh, revolutionary third world nationalism, uh, more in a sense that um, America's own uh, journey from having been a uh, colony um, of the British Empire to being uh, an independent republic was kind of opposed really um, to the, this other historical kind of trajectory of um, the establishment or the, the kind of the um, uh, continuance of um, the British Empire. Um, the Southeast Asia Command um, was uh, often jokingly referred to by American soldiers as saving England's Asian colonies, for example. Wilkie defended himself by saying uh, that he wasn't attacking the British, but this is a kind of a classic political uh, play, really. Um, one can uh, say whatever one likes and then backtrack and say, well, I didn't say that or I didn't mean it, really. However... He did say that uh, um, people around the world 
knew that America was not fighting for profit or loot uh, or territory or mandatory power over the lives of governments or people. Uh, that America's, uh, America's motives were pure. Obviously, this is far from being the case. Wilkie was pretty aware that if he wanted to challenge Roosevelt again in 1944, he would need uh, the Jewish vote. He had lost by 20 million votes, or 22 million votes, in 1940. But in Illinois, Michigan, New Jersey, New York and Ohio, where Wilkie had been close to uh, catching up with Roosevelt in all those states, um, there were significant numbers of Jewish voters who would all be very useful if he could deliver to them a firm promise of a, uh, a Jewish homeland, or Jewish state even, uh, and mass Jewish immigration at the end of the war. So on the 25th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, which was uh, on the eve of the midterm elections, Wendell Wilkie once again spoke to um, the American population, but this re- it really focused his message on uh, Jewish voters. Um, he spoke at length about the uh, genocide of Jews in Europe, um, about the uh, refusal of the British to allow more Jews into Palestine, and he spoke about the sinking of a ship uh, called the Struma. Um, and James Byer writes, Earlier that year, uh, the American weekly Life had reported on the methodical massacre of Polish Jews, backed up by the allegation with a series of grim photographs. Then came the news of the sinking of the ship called the Struma. The vessel, an unseaworthy hulk that was crammed with Jewish refugees fleeing Romania uh, and a similar fate, had spent eight weeks anchored off Istanbul after the British government refused its entry to Palestine. Towed out of the port, the Struma had either hit a mine or was struck by a torpedo in the Black Sea. All but one of its 769 passengers died. Extremists within the Zionist movement and in the United States exploited the anger generated by the Struma disaster. Known as the Revisionists, they'd been campaigning for over 20 years for the establishment of an independent Jewish state that stretched east from Jordan. The Struma disaster gave the Revisionists um, ample uh, ammunition to uh, attack um, the British with, uh, and in, in propaganda terms, they had demanded um, a Jewish army that uh, would, not simply a, a Jewish uh, division within the British army, but a Jewish army um, that would uh, participate in the war effort. But the British were um, fairly convinced that the result of arming the Jews would be a war with the Jews uh, in Palestine fairly shortly afterwards or during the war, uh, as they would simply create um, a revisionist army able to um, occupy Palestine uh, when it saw fit. And the revisionists have been a fairly kind of minority voice, um, and it was the sinking of the Struma that started to give them uh, significant support and, of course, funding across America um, from uh, from that moment onwards. In May 1942, uh, just before Wilkie had uh, gone off on his journeys, um, there was a conference of Zionists uh, that took place in New York, uh, which showed that uh, opinion had begun to swung in favour of the Revisionist Party. Um, five days of discussion at the Biltmore Hotel 
um, showed that the uh, delegates were willing to um, come forth with a public statement, which was later known as the Biltmore Declaration. Um, the Biltmore Declaration um, condemned the British government's immigration restrictions. Uh, it called them cruel and indefensible, um, and it demanded the transfer of responsibility for immigration policy to the Jews of Palestine. And this would be the prelude to the creation of a Jewish commonwealth, which would integrate into the structure of the new democratic world, by which it meant the, the new structures of the United Nations, which were being uh, planned and proposed uh, for, uh, for after the war. Um, an independent Jewish state, in, in any other words. And it called um, for the establishment of a Jewish army, um, which would uh, eventually um, manifest itself uh, not in uh, an actual uh, uniformed army, but in the Haganah, the Jewish Defence Force uh, guerrilla army uh, that, that emerges. But that's um, a story for another time. Roosevelt, up until this point, had tried not to raise the issue of Palestine with Churchill, but this is becoming more and more difficult. The Zionists had begun to put large front-page adverts in American newspapers demanding that Roosevelt take action, so it was becoming more and more embarrassing to Roosevelt. And not only the American uh, Republican Party, but also Roosevelt's own wife, Eleanor, had begun to embrace the cause of a Jewish army um, serving in the Middle East. See, unlike Roosevelt, Wilkie was not really bound by diplomatic considerations. Wilkie can say and do what he wanted. And Wilkie used this uh, as a position to um, promote himself, particularly on the eve of the Balfour Declaration anniversary. Um, Ro Wilkie demanded that the British throw open the doors of Palestine um, and this was the only way in which uh, Hitler's programme of extermination of the Jewish people, as he put it, could be um, prevented, uh, and that therefore the British had almost the answer to the Holocaust in their hands, um, and that the doors of Palestine would also have to be opened anyway um, for any of the, for the Jews who survived the war, um, who would be homeless, who would be unable to return to any of their homelands in Central uh, and Eastern Europe. Um, and the, uh, the Jews, uh, Wilkie argued, as had the um, Convention of American Zionists, um, the Jews should be the people who control immigration uh, into Palestine. Now, the British were obviously irritated by the uh, pronouncements of Wilkie, but Churchill looked at Wilkie in a particular way. Churchill knew that Roosevelt wasn't well, and he didn't believe that Roosevelt would be able to campaign for a fourth term. He was wrong in that. Um, and he thought that Wilkie would win in 1944. This is uh, one of Churchill's um, typical kind of uh, assumptions that become kind of a uh, matter of fact in his mind. And so he didn't, even, he didn't wish to um, completely negate or dismiss Wendell Wilkie either. Now, we'll look um, in the next couple of podcasts uh, at how the story uh, unfolds and uh, return to Lords of the Desert. But I would recommend making a purchase of it because it's an incredible book 
really, really well worth it um, if you are interested in many of the more hidden histories of uh, imperialism and the Middle East. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. And if you can support us via Patreon, uh, do check out the Explaining History Patreon page and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.